this sucks for me. And Survivor sucks. Survivor sucks. I can't believe you watched the same seasons over and over and over. It's the same thing. Well, not Micronesia. Okay, yeah, that season did change the game. Welcome back, everybody. Here we are again in the patron zone to dive into a brand new season today, kicking off one that I am very excited for, Survivor Micronesia. Dom, how you feeling? Feeling good. Uh, it's fun to be starting a new season, whatever it is, and this is a uh, significant one for me and also just for the fan base as a whole. I think even after... It's close to, what, 13, 14 years at this point. This is still held up as one of the all-time great Survivor seasons. And certainly uh, in its day, you know, the, the late 2000s, early 2010s, it was this and Heroes vs. Villains usually duking it out for that number one, number two spot at the top of the, the season power rankings or uh, as an all-star season or a season with some all-stars in it, I, I guess is <laughs> more accurate. Um, it, it was never going to feature in those discussions of, how would you start off a new Survivor fan? You were going to point them in another direction instead, but with the understanding that as soon as they could watch Micronesia, they should be encouraged to because this is the best of the best, right? This is as good as it gets. Uh, and we've had so many seasons since then. Like, th this is comfortably in the first half of Survivor's all-time run. Like, th this is very much old school at this point. Um, that some parts of it have aged well, some have not. And for me, it's almost... It, I would describe it the same way I would a show like Breaking Bad or something, where like I have very fond memories of when this was as good as it gets for me, but it's been so long since I last touched it that I'm kind of uh, cautiously pessimistic that maybe it is not as good as I remember, and I would rather be cocooned in that bubble where my memories of it are just entirely positive. So where is it for you in your current cocoon in the grand scheme of like all-time great Survivor seasons? I think it's still up there, and that same caveat I would have to issue about so many other seasons, like the ones that I haven't rewatched in, in years, except in some cases for this very uh, podcast uh, rewatch series um, that I couldn't possibly do a fair ranking. But uh, it's still, you know, the, the version of it that exists in my memory is, is right up there. Uh, and e even though, on paper, this season should not work. If someone was describing or, or asking you to describe why is this season so good, I think there's a lot more in the the uh, the against column than the for column. But you, you think of like, well, it's a fans versus favorite season. Like that is the tagline here, and that format, not just on Survivor, but across uh, reality TV franchises as a whole, has become this recipe for failure. I, I think it's fair to say. Um, the choice of returning players, uh, there are some hits there, but there, there are some misses too, and there are also some fan favorites coming into the season who went out with a whimper rather than a bang and who saw their reputations kind of uh, abruptly halted. Like their star was in the Ascendant and then it came crashing back down to Earth again. And then you have uh, more medevacs here than in any other season, at least for quite a while. Uh, you have uh, some unfortunate ways that these fan favorites were exiting the game. And then at the very end, you have this twist, which turns what could have been uh, this, uh, this all-time great uh, survivor winner and fan favorite into someone who would later join their pantheon, but even in the aftermath of her win in Micronesia, was seen as kind of 
the nobody of the season who repeated the the Amber Burkett trajectory of the least memorable person coming into the season is inevitably the one who ends up taking down the crown. Uh, so on paper, I think there are more reasons why the season shouldn't work than that it should. And yet, my memory is at least, it kind of works pretty well anyway. Yeah, and I, I'm sure we will get into... Uh, a ton of what makes it so good over the course of this entire rewatch, at least unless it grossly uh, fails to meet my expectations in my memory. But I think there, what you just got into, there's a lot to unpack there, unpack there, which I definitely want to do. But I wanted to begin by saying, in returning to the question of like, and it's a common question that we have as we just begin any of these rewatches that we do, how we currently remember it. Uh, and how things may change over the course of rewatching it in what are currently modern times. Uh, for me, I think it is at least below Kageyan and Heroes versus Villains in my memory, but I'm not too sure that I can come up with any other seasons that I would say are definitely, in my view, better than Micronesia. Uh, so on one hand, I kind of share your cautious pessimism because it seems like, at least on paper, there's nowhere for it to go but down in my rankings. And on top of that, we did China uh, not too long ago. And as much as I still love China and have loved China since the first time I watched it, I would say that that was one that stands out uh, as not quite living up to my memory of it. And part of that is super unfair because of a lot of the things that made China so incredible in the moment have as the show has produced more and more seasons, more and more blindsides, more and more people leaving with idols or an idol at the very least in their pocket kind of diminished the like shock value. And that's a super unfair metric by which to judge a season from 2006 or whatever. But one way or another, uh, I did come away from China feeling like maybe I had been kind of overrating it. And I am nervous that Micronesia just because of the kind of, similar era that it lands in may meet the same fate for me, but I certainly am not going to uh, worry too much about that just yet. And I think one of the most interesting, interesting things to track along the way here is how this plays into the legacies of some of the all time great players for my money, at least in the form of uh, Sari and Parvati and how this all kind of leads into heroes versus villains, etc., and kind of cementing, those reputations but uh let's dig a little deeper here dom into something you brought up that i think is really interesting which is the idea that this is without a doubt a very very good season of survivor almost despite the fans versus favorites format and to be fair to be fair i don't know that the producers could have necessarily understood when they were piecing this idea together just how overpowered being a returnee would be. Uh, although I don't think the same can be said of putting returnees in with a bunch of newbies for pretty much the entire stretch of Survivor 22 through Survivor 27. And that went on to kind of define that entire era of the show and probably not so much in a good way as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but if you were to find out that like, let's say Survivor 46 were to be a fans versus favorites format again, how would you feel about that? 
See, the, the funny thing here is I think if I heard that tomorrow, I would be pretty excited. And I'm sure if I had been part of the Survivor fan base back in 2007, as the first rumors about Micronesia were spilling out, I would have been excited then as well. And I think the premise at that time made a lot of sense for them to pursue for reasons I'll, I'll circle back to it in a second. But as you mentioned, in between, we had so many examples of this premise uh, just failing in the most ludicrous ways or almost being a way to set up the season to fail, if that makes sense. Um, so you could understand if someone was completely off the concept entirely and never wanted to see it again. I think the conditions have changed in such a way that it would be at least uh, more plausible or more competitive these days, uh, depending on what their aim was. And that's the thing with uh, a fans versus favorite season is what are you hoping to come out of this? Are you hoping for uh, these starstruck, naive fans who are looking up to these players to just be these lambs of the slaughter as a way to get a full season of the people who are the big draws of the season in the first place, like your Aussies and your uh, Ceres and, and so on? Or do you want it to be more competitive? Do you want this to be, uh, as part of this long-term plan maybe, a way to introduce these players who are thrown at the deep end and the ones who manage to survive in that crucible in turn become part of the next crop of all-star returning players who go on to cement their legacies. Um, so d depending on how uh, sincere your motives are, I guess, if you're here for the right reasons, uh, then th th I think the premise can work and you have to be quite intentional in casting as well. So, for example, uh, I know that in the context of Redemption Island, a lot of people like to say that the big difference between Rob and Russell on that season, it's not just that Rob is a better survivor player than Russell, perhaps by an order of magnitude. And it's not just that Russell did himself absolutely no favors, whereas Boss and Rob brought his A game. It's that uh, Russell started on the tribe full of uh, older, more skeptical players who uh, didn't want to enable a returning player to win almost whoever it was. Whereas Boston Rob started on the tribe of uh, young 20-something zombies who would have just, just have done whatever he said. And if you reverse their positions, then maybe you reverse their outcomes uh, as well. And so that stands out as a good, good example of, yeah, you could uh, almost engineer a likely outcome on your fans versus favorite season almost more based on who the fans are than who the favorites are. And that... Uh, experience advantage is so great that you could have some uh, some favorites who are not all-time greats, uh, shall we say, but who get to kind of effortlessly coast in the season regardless if the fans just aren't up to the task of, of giving them a proper challenge. Right. I think Blood versus Water would be another one that stands out to me as when mixing returnees with a bunch of newbies goes well, but I think a lot of that has to do with the caliber of new players that were in on that season, like Sierra Easton or Hayden Moss or Vetus, uh, all in there really trying to put up a, a fight and not go down limply like I feel like many, if not most, of the other first-timers that have been put in that situation probably have over the years. And I also think another reason that I too agree with you that I, I might find myself excited if I were to find out that some forthcoming season were to be another shot at fans versus favorites applying similar logic. I feel like the new players that they've been bringing in, in this new era are 
drastically more interested in the show in general and are not primarily out there for like the experience or the exposure or whatever a lot of the people were for quite a long time uh right around this point in survivor history uh and furthermore seeing the shift in attitude that we did on specifically survivor 38 where the returnees there who were thrown in with primarily new players were immediate targets on both tribes and i would guess that if they're continuing to cast people who are for the most part big time fans of the show who want to win themselves and are eager to play their first time like it's their second or third time that could do a lot of favors for the fans versus uh, favorites format as well. Yeah. Or, or another season, which I know both of us have in the thick of things for best season of all time, top tier season, uh, Survivor Philippines, where I think that is the perfect blend of returning players and new players, both in terms of quantity, but I think it's so easy when you have uh, half and half returning players, or of course, if you have more than that for those existing relationships between those players or those uh, pre-show dynamics coming in to just overwhelm everything and for the new players not to really have uh, a realistic shot of things. Um, so you, you have this this spattering of returning players, which I think works out pretty well. And if the newbies want to gang up against them, then they, they very easily uh, can do. And then also those returning players did not feel like they uh, were outmatching the newbies. Like the, the newbies were competitive and the returning players were not selected because they had dominated their respective seasons. Uh, in that case, it was just the opposite, right? It was they were robbed of living up to their full potential, and now we get to see if they can uh, put that on display. Um, and e even within those newbies, you had people who, like Malcolm and Denise, who were better as first-timers than the returning players were as second- or third-timers, and who were willing to work with the returnees if it made sense for them, but we're not committed either way. And you also have like the Jeff Kent of the world who come in uh, with no, they're not starstruck by the returning players. If anything, they see them as a threat to their ego and they have this ideological belief that the returning players should not do well. And so you could very easily, uh, if you were a, uh, if you were Jeff Probst and you had some like vendetta against some returning player, you could very easily engineer a situation where, you bring them back on a season full of Jeff Kent's or, or people like that and watch them go down in flames. Um, but if you want to just, I guess, be more responsible as a producer, but still lead to a good season, then you try and fill out your cast with uh, Malcolm's and Denise's instead and then watch the sparks fly and, and watch the magic happen. Totally. Yes. Uh, I know I ask you this question fairly regularly when we begin uh, a classic season rewatch and quite often the answer is i don't remember and i'm very prepared for that to be the case in this instance as well uh but you mentioned something earlier and i think you're dead right that when people are like watching survivor for the first time you wouldn't want to start them with like micronesia or heroes versus villains even though they are generally regarded as two of the best seasons ever made uh you kind of reverse engineer we're going to build towards heroes versus villains in micronesia but let's get you the relevant context of that first do you remember roughly where micronesia landed in your initial binge of whatever survivor seasons you could get your hands on in england in the year 2010 and like <laughs> what your expectations were when you saw that it was a fans versus favorite thing 
Well, in that case, it wasn't about uh, what I could get my hands on. I just went on YouTube and went on uh, Stentalizer's <laughs> YouTube channel, and it was all just right there for me. Shout and, out uh, to Christine... the legend, by the way. Yeah, Stentalizer, yeah. A, a, an all-time underrated uh, hero of the Survivor community. An absolute MVP. But yeah, it was it was all there for me in a pristine standard definition uh, at, at that time. Um, I, I think that it wasn't at the very end. I think that my watching... Micronesia for the first time spoiled some other outcomes for me, but I don't remember at this point uh, what those were. Okay. Uh, I certainly remember watching Micronesia in real time and being very excited about the prospect of a fans versus favorites kind of situation. Uh, and honestly, like after having seen it play out just in this one case, I get why they went back to the well of putting some number of returnees in with newbies just based on how well the first time around went. Although I think it becomes a little less forgivable after you get through that like early twenties kind of stretch. And that's the thing too. If you go back to the first all-star season, which uh, some jokers on survivor sucks and other places refer to as just ass based on his acronym, it was the all-star season. And then Micronesia in due course became half ass. Um, That I don't think went down very well with a lot of people. Uh, that that was a season which, if you were a Mariano fanboy, if you loved their uh, their romance their romance arc, and you're a Boston Rob stand to this day, then yeah, that's going to boost that season up quite a bit for you. Uh, but just in terms of the the business and the damage to a lot of people's reputations and the just the the dark tone that a lot of the season had, especially with a lot of the uh, the Boston Rob stuff with Lex and Big Tom and, and Kathy and so on, I, I think that season left a very sour taste in a lot of people's mouths. And so at the point where Micronesia comes around and people are thinking, well, this is the same spot in the cycle where we had uh, All-Stars the first time around, are we going to do that again and risk some of the same downsides? Uh, it, it was not, I think, a given for a lot of people that that was a smart move. Um, and I think you would have dodged a lot of that, actually, because the thing that made the first All-Stars unique, and if you had had, you know, the same format every eight seasons, I think you would have seen a lot of this only really occur in the first one, is that because those initial seasons were so special and such a phenomenon and the cast members from those seasons were so tightly bonded together, there was so much more room for hurt feelings, for these really, like, life-altering conflicts within that um that i think on the average all-star season these days even like the worst of the worst examples there that it just doesn't have the same kind of tinge to it um that that being said though i think that that became this cautionary tale for both producers and fans and players alike going into whatever the next big uh returning player season was going to be and so i think it made sense to try and uh hedge your bets or uh, mix it up a bit with a th- with this new format where, yeah, we have some uh, returning players, but if that becomes uh, embroiled in bad blood or what have you, then we also have this crop of new players who hopefully are interesting in their own right. And just the mere fact that they are here going up against some of, uh, ideally, the players that they are fans of is going to make their presence there more interesting in and of itself. I feel like with the original All-Stars and how people out there view it, a ton of it, if not like the majority of it, simply comes down to how the viewer feels about exactly Boston Rob. Uh, But I I also (laughs) think that the original All-Star season, 
suffered quite a bit from losing so many of the players that people were most excited for early. Uh, and that's certainly not unique to the original All-Star East season by any stretch. But I think it's a very good example of like Rob Zesternino being a, a glaring instance of what we would call in poker, like people just having to pay the shark tax. Uh, and this is a season I think where at least Sari is able to overcome that. And then heroes versus villains, I think benefits tremendously from people who had had prior successes and gone deep their first time being able to overcome uh, the shark tax, which has been, I think a big detriment to many different uh returnee seasons that we have seen over the years here uh so i think and i i think the that first all-star season as well it set a number of quite troubling precedents if you are a producer or one of the players who falls under this remit where for example we have a bunch of these these winners of course in the original survivor all-stars right like you're not it's not going to be an, an all-star season if you don't have hatch if you don't have ethan and, and so on and so forth um but then you knew coming in that there was this campaign to get the winners out and not let one of them uh, even go deep in the game, let alone become a, an actual two-time winner the way that Sandra was able to do uh, before too long in due course. Uh, and so knowing that, uh, you know, their cards are marked, right? You, of course you're going to have Hatchback, and of course he's not going to be allowed to win. And so you're you're just hoping and praying that you get to milk uh, four or five good episodes out of him um I, I think that that it puts you in a really tough spot as someone who is like working on the show and trying to create a good season and then this season uh when, when we get to micronesia almost has the opposite problem where uh we don't have any winners and we don't have any of the truly iconic players where like back in the day yeah maybe you don't think that rudy can recapture that same magic that he had in Borneo, but of course you're going to have Rudy on your all-star season, right? Like uh, that, that's not even up for debate. Uh, I don't think there's anyone in this nine to 15 uh, stretch whose status is as hallowed and as guaranteed in that way. And so, yeah, e even if you have someone like Yao Man, right? Like massive fan favorite comes back, unfortunately goes out early in Micronesia. That's unfortunate, but it's not this uh, crime against survivor that a lot of people viewed it as when uh, some of those th those true titans of early survivor just failed to do the same thing again in all stars and i think yaman is a perfect illustration on this season of someone just having to pay the shark tax like i don't know that if they'd never seen yaman before he would have been the third person eliminated but when you have seen him before and the other options on the table are primarily people that you're not super worried about long term at least based what you know based on what you know in the year 2007 or so uh that becomes a much different kind of equation to be solving there but let's get into dom the favorites that are going to be returning because i think yao man is a good shout here as someone who it's not like an all-time tragedy if yao man never returns to survivor or if he ends up going out early as we will go on to see here uh but i do think yao man if we want to kind of go through this cast from the perspective of assuming they were willing to say yes uh which obviously everyone who wound up here was who were the locks who were the people where it's basically like all right story checks out i get why they would want them back and why they would agree and then who was kind of like a shocking returnee, if anyone. Uh, and I think Yao Man is firmly 
in the lock category of like, if this guy is willing to come back a year after he just played for the first time, of course, you're going to have Yao Man back for this situation. Uh, the other person, I I feel very comfortable at least saying that assuming he was willing to do it, even though the people who he would be playing against hadn't got to see much of his actual first time around at the time that they were filming here from an audience perspective. I feel like James was a complete no brainer to be asked. James is a fascinating example here because as you say, uh, the way the filming schedule lined up meant that the, the fans who were going to be competing on the season only would have got to see uh, the first few episodes of China. Like, I don't think they even would have got to that big, uh, like, fake swap twist, right? I think that may have been the very last episode they saw. I I don't know the dates (laughs) off the top of my head, but uh, I did look up that the season began filming something like three days after episode six of china aired so i'm guessing they almost surely did not see episode six i think they may have been able to see episode five but certainly nothing beyond that so they may have been going out there assuming james is going to meet the fate that aaron met like he was going to be the next one out of that revolving door after surely getting uh uh swap screwed in the most extreme sense by Mm. this uh this ridiculous twist uh, and little did they know what was going to be in store for james that season but it's it's a fascinating example because based on what little they could see you could see why people would like james and i'm sure many of them did and you, you can see visibly a lot of them are excited uh when he shows up there some of that is just what makes james such a uh a big character is just the sheer size of him right like if if you showed this season to someone who had never seen Survivor before and James, just like this hulking Goliath, uh, is like lumbering onto the beach, you can you can imagine, OK, I, I don't know what's going on with this guy, but I can kind of tell what his deal is. Right. Um, in a way that you can't with some of the others. Uh, and so I wonder how many of the fans seeing James assumed that like that was it. That OK, this guy is just really strong, great in challenges and from what we saw has like this pretty distinct uh, like personality or communication style whatever versus there is some missing link here there is some uh portion to james's story that we're not seeing yet that is going to make a lot of sense when i'm watching this when i'm watching his first season after mine has stopped filming on my couch in uh, a few months from now right and uh it is actually interesting like the timetable here for james and amanda is they go film china it starts airing and then they don't even get to watch China as it's airing. They go play again and then they get back home like just in time to go to the China live winter reveal and reunion and have already played this additional season between those two things happening. Yeah, they're, they're almost stuck in this weird like time loop or something. And, yeah. uh, Amanda is the ultimate victim of this in several ways where uh, there were reports, and I'm not sure if these were substantiated or not, but there were reports that she at one point thought she was a two-time winner, uh, where or, or at least she thought she had won China. And then at some point it would have clicked that if they were going to have winners on this season, there would have been other winners there. And so the fact that I've been invited 
proves that I did not, in fact, win China. So better turn it on for this time. Uh, and then gets to the finals, perhaps assumes this time she did it for real, uh, and then gets disappointed uh, on that big stage a second time around. But it, it also leads to one of the uh, just perpetually funny scenes when I uh, watch this season of uh, Jeff is announcing all of the favorites and they're uh, emerging from not a helicopter. They don't get the full like all-star treatment here, but they, they just show up from around the, the, the clearing or whatever. Um, and th- there's a, a, a range of reactions depending on who's coming out. And then Amanda, and it's it's just like very polite applause, the way that you might see it like a regatta or something. It's like it's so, <laughs> so understated. And uh, Amanda and James, like they're going to have this, uh, that they're going to be in lockstep from China, Micronesia, and Heroes versus Villains. Like they have this relationship that spans three seasons. Uh, but whereas James, in the first four episodes that they got to see of China, like I said, you can kind of tell what this guy's deal is. With Amanda, you really can't. It is not at all apparent from those first few episodes of China why Amanda is in contention to be an all star or why anyone would say that she's a fan favorite. Um, and her signature move in that season of suggesting that they should blindside James the way that the, the story tells it comes way later in the storyline. And, and so you have no idea why Amanda is even there to begin with. And that, I, that I think partly explains the, the muted reception there. Right. Uh, certainly from the perspective of the people out there playing, the fans out there playing against her. Yeah. One, probably one of at the very least the most kind of like famous slash iconic moments from this entire Micronesia premiere is that Amanda reaction that I think anytime uh, someone in our kind of super fan circle is rewatching this episode, I suspect that is something they're looking forward to seeing again, because it it, it does hit every single time. Uh, But I will note that James, by my personal highly scientific applausometer, I think James got like the second biggest pop from the crowd there uh, in terms of like the fan reaction to seeing someone, even though they had only seen a little bit of him. And Yao Man seemed to be the the big time number one. And Yao's entrance is easily the best one where he's like everyone else is like casually strolling over to their mat from behind the rock. Yao Man is like jogging and pumping his fists and everyone's uh giving him a big round of applause uh that fires me up every single time there uh so those two i think definitely track as kind of locks on the men's side and then the other guy that i thought would probably be someone that assuming he was willing to come back would be very high uh at the very least on the production kind of bulletin board of who we would like to have on this season i feel like ozzy was a pretty natural fit here as well Definitely. Yeah. And then there are some in the other camp of like, like Penna, it's hard for me to gauge how much of a fan favorite he really was. And there are, I think if you were going to do a, a full all-star season with 20 names instead of 10, my first question would be, who do you think was on the outside looking in? Like who's in that 11 to 20 range who gets cut when you slim it down from uh, all-stars two to fans versus favorites? Uh, and maybe there are some who like would have landed in that range, but some other people who were higher on the list uh, couldn't do it or turn them down. And so we kind of just go down the board until we find people who are willing to do it. Uh, I, I do wonder how much this favorite tribe resembles 
their ideal favorite tribe if they completely had their druthers. I do want to, after we get through the people who are actually going to be here, talk through some others who I would guess they would at least have wanted back if they were willing or people who were kind of like snubs. Uh, I, I think that is an interesting conversation as well. Uh, but quickly, uh, as far as the locks on the women's side go, Sari obviously in retrospect to someone they should have demanded come back under whatever circumstances uh, it would take to get her out there. But I, th- I think she was probably pretty eager to go back out and do it considering we've seen her do it uh, twice more since then. I-, I think she was a complete no brainer. If well, you, well, that's, but... not, sorry to interject, but that's the other funny thing about this uh, is that since I last rewatched a season, which must have been uh, like 2015 or something in that range at this point, uh, we have had like Survivor Game Changers. We've had Winners of War, and yet uh, none of those return appearances from Suri or Ozzy or Parvati in the all-winner season, and this is how she books her ticket to that in the first place. None of those really made an impression to the point where it causes you to look at any part of the season in a different light, really. I totally agree. Yeah, I frankly remember very little about anything Ozzy did on Game Changers or Parvati on Winners at War. Sari, I think, on uh, Game Changers, I have some kind of uh, idea of how that went and how screwed she got, and I just try not to think about it uh, as often, but I I legitimately could not tell you anything about what Ozzy was up to at virtually any point in Game Changers there, even knowing that he made it re- relatively far. Was he the literal merge boot there? I, I truly don't remember. Wait, in uh, Game Changers? Or was Haley the merge boot? Who was the merge boot in Game Changers? It was the, uh, the one and only Haley Ford. Okay. Yeah. All right. I feel like Ozzy was right around in that area as well, but legit no memory of it. And it will not impact my viewing of him in Micronesia in the slightest. But uh, yeah, Suri slam dunk uh, to be uh, a lock, assuming she says yes, as far as I'm concerned. And then I also feel like Amy would be someone that they would be very, very eager to have back as well, assuming she was down. Uh, I know that may sound somewhat weird to some people perhaps in the year 2022 but uh amy at the time i think was for a survivor super fan someone that people would certainly remember at the very least from her original season there and someone very worthy uh, of a spot on a season like this absolutely i i mean her her ice queen performance in vanuatu is to me one of the most compelling just single season character arcs still in the history of the show and uh i i don't know if we'll ever get around to rewatching vanuatu uh for this series but frankly if this had been an all-star season like a full 20 person cast uh you, you couldn't pick and choose the men from across the years but i would quite happily just have the entire female cast of Survivor Vanuatu in there to, to hold up that side of the bar. I don't think that's a crazy take at all. You could certainly do way worse uh, than that entire tribe there. Uh, and speaking of that women's tribe from Vanuatu, we're also going to have Eliza back here this season, who I don't think I would put in the lock category, but I think belongs firmly in the story checks out category of i totally understand why they would have her back here uh and i feel like she is an excellent addition to this sort of cast 
Absolutely. And uh, we're going to get on to the snubs or the uh, what could have been in a little bit. But uh, when specifically Corny is turning you down, having the uh, emaciated but snarky younger woman there to kind of fill some of that void, I think, is uh, even more necessary. Absolutely. Yeah. And there is more Vanuatu to come when we get to the snubs. Trust me, Dom. Uh, And then I also have uh, Amanda here in this story checks out camp. Uh, Penner, I think. Makes a ton of sense. I wouldn't have been shocked at all if Penner just never came back to Survivor, but he was someone I personally really liked on Cook Islands. I thought his rapport with Jeff, at the very least, uh, was funny. And, you know, based on the fact that they brought him back for this and then brought him back again, by the way, uh, it seems like he was someone that the producers generally uh, enjoyed whatever uh, he was bringing to the show whenever they had him on it. So uh, I think that one definitely makes sense. And then and they not only brought him back, they almost contrived a specific premise for a season that only he and a handful of other people could possibly meet mm-hmm. so that they had an excuse to bring him back, which is uh, I, honestly, that might be the biggest feather in his cap more so than anything else. A, a, a literally feather capped man. So story checks out uh, multiple ways there. And then someone I was actually kind of torn between putting him in the locks category versus the story checks out category is Johnny Fairplay, where I think the mere fact that he is the last one they bring out from behind the rock kind of tells you all you need to know about how the producers view his kind of legacy compared to the others in this cast uh, at the time where they were casting this sort of thing. Like I think fair play was the biggest name among the returnees here, but I just wouldn't have been surprised at all if they only pulled from seasons nine through 15 here. So uh, wouldn't have been a shock to me if fair play did not come back for this. And on top of that, you of course have his kind of contentious relationship with Jeff to say the least after how things played out behind the scenes at like the Vanuatu reunion or whatever. But it seems like the stars at least temporarily aligned basically until the game started for getting fair play back on this season. So I was, I feel like if you are open to having people from the first seven seasons and Johnny Fairplay is willing to say yes, I, I think a case could easily be made to have him as a lock. Yeah, so uh, friend of the show, I suppose, from back in the day, and friend of you, I guess, Johnny Fairplay. Uh, he is, I think, the the most surprising appearance on this cast, if only for the fact that he is the one bridge to that pre-All-Stars era of Survivor. And that in itself is kind of the head-scratching part, is how did this big of a villain not make it onto the All-Star season, which was the very next season at the time of filming? And I guess one answer is that not that many people did, right? Like, I, was it only Rupert from the Pearl Islands cast that, that made the leap there? I believe that is the case. Uh, and yeah, I feel like, honestly, when you look at the men's side of that original All-Star season cast... I think it's tough to find scratches, even knowing that Johnny Fairplay was a massive character from the season that directly preceded it. Uh, I think it would probably be Rob Mariano's spot that he would have been taking. Yeah, that's a crazy that is, that's a that's a crazy right. butterfly effect kind of sliding doors situation if you put Fairplay out there instead of Boston Rob, and we just never hear from boston rob again who i feel comfortable saying at this point is the face of survivor just as a franchise yeah that's one of those things where uh whenever a work of fiction involves time travel in any capacity 
there's got to be someone warning the protagonist that uh, hey if you you have no idea what could possibly happen, even if it's like the smallest change. And this is one of those uh, small changes that has massive consequences uh, down the line. I mean, it is beyond ridiculous to think about how different the course of Survivor history looks if either of Rob or Amber misses the cut there on the original All-Star season. And if either of them is not there, it truly seems like the entire scope of Survivor history from that point forward looks totally different. 100%. Yeah. Uh, but so you might know the answers to this better than me. What was the timeline with uh, Fair Play's firstly feud with Jeff Probes that made his coming back to Survivor at any point a uh, an open question? And then the exact uh, like weird dynamics that led to his uh, quick exit here. So the timeline is, I believe it was at the Vanuatu reunion. Fairplay tells this story uh, in the retrospective we did with him <laughs> close to a decade ago at this point. And I, and I will add, given the source, maybe take that version of the story with a heaping portion of salt here. Uh, Fairplay said something to like Jeff's brother, if memory serves, and Jeff didn't like it and they got in some kind of spat about that uh and i think it probably wouldn't have been a big shock if that alone had just kind of meant fair play was never coming back to survivor uh and i i think we will go on to see over the course of this one episode that he's in there is a bit of a contentious relationship uh on display with jeff even that makes like the final cut of the show and then the other kind of relevant timeline I think is worth flagging up here from the Johnny Fairplay side of it all is this season is filming something like a week or two after he has just been body slammed by Danny Bonaducci at some awards show and he is like still not feeling great from that and on some number of pain medications that will I think play a pretty big role in how things play out for him here. Yeah, and I don't know if at the time where that happened, how late this was in the Micronesia like casting confirmation process, if there was time to back out if he had wanted to or or what have you. And I think he goes into some of the details in that episode we did with him. And we'll, we'll come back around to should we call this a quit? Uh, what effect does this have in terms of deflating the early momentum of the season when we get to this first uh, tribal council here? But anything else from the uh the actual casting list or the list of people who could or should have made it in that's worth uh, touching on i i think there are a couple more things although uh one thing i meant to bring up when we were talking about penner i saw this fun bit of trivia as far as i'm concerned uh on twitter today over uh, uh not today it was a few days ago uh i don't know why i said today but <laughs> over at uh the great at survivor quotes x uh always putting out some fun survivor content worth a follow for sure uh, Penner is the only contestant in Survivor history out of like 600 or so people who have played and many, many, many who have played multiple times, two, three, four, sometimes five times. He is the only one who has been on a season with two starting tribes, three starting tribes and four starting tribes. So I uh, wanted to flag that up because I thought that was pretty interesting. And then Dom, there is, of course, one name remaining out of the people who actually made the cast here that I have filed into the kind of shock category for me of seeing them brought back in the first place. And that is Parvati, uh, who you compared earlier 
to being kind of like the Amber equivalent of this cast. And I think you were dead right about that. I remember vividly watching the season premiere of this and watching all the people come out from around the side of the rock. And when Parvati was brought around, not remembering Parvati at all. I remembered the name Parvati, but I could not tell you anything about what she did the first time around. And that is another kind of all-time survivor butterfly effect moment of, I have to imagine Parvati was one of the last people in among this crew. And it's crazy to think about how different the just scope of survivor history, if she is not there, looks for heroes versus villains and beyond. Yeah, I think this is a run-on effect of the way they approached both casting and editing in that era of the show, where uh, even with uh, 10 people to to fill out the cast list for instead of 20, it is just hard for them to find um, a full selection of women who kind of cover the spread of character types and roles and so on that, that they need with any allowance for people turning them down. So, yeah, if they were able to have, you know, Courtney from China, for example, or some of the other people who, if they had their perfect list, maybe would have made it on. Like you said, I don't think poverty probably makes the cut, but when you're just looking for whoever you can get, and uh, in an era where there are a lot of people on any given season who just kind of get treated as fodder, um, that really gives you a shallow pool to draw upon, especially on the women's side, where, like, a lot of these... Uh, early boots who go out just don't really get any kind of treatment at all. And then even some of the uh, the late gamers uh, are kind of written off as well. It's like, who, who else really would be in the mix if poverty isn't there? Right. Uh, and not only was I only really remembering poverty like by name, it seems like Jeff Probst himself was barely even remembering Parvati's name. He will go on to screw up her name so many times over the course of this season. And when we rewatched Heroes vs. Villains, he was still screwing it up then, even after she had already gone on to kind of cement herself as a survivor worth perhaps remembering. Uh, but probably a bit more on that in some future I, week here. I, I forgot that we we now have a whole season in which to relitigate this debate. To me... All of those examples that get brought up of people saying her name wrong or whatever, you can tell they are doing their best, like with good faith, to say the name properly. And it's just the way that they talk, like their their diction or what have you, that is leading leading it to come out in a way that people like you are jumping on them for it. Okay, we maybe sometime in the future we can roll some audio to uh, to <laughs> settle this once and for all. But like, it is very funny when she is brought around the side of the rock to be introduced to the fans. Jeff is clearly working very hard on like enunciating it correctly and not messing Poverty. it up. Yeah, he he really like leans into that first syllable. And he also hits the T so hard, uh, in <laughs> trying to make sure everyone can hear uh the, the like the letters in the correct order there. I you know, I have to imagine if your name is Parvati, you're going to spend a decent chunk of your entire life with people messing your name up. And this is probably something that she, even at the point of Micronesia, was very used to. Uh, but that's something we can keep on the back burner for now and investigate. I, yes, I, I think it's worth saying with Pavdi, though, that uh, so firstly, you have this trend which had developed with various all-star uh, seasons at this point, both the original Survivor All-Stars and Big Brother All-Stars, where the the least memorable members of the cast going in are the ones who end up either winning the season in, in Amma's case, or just sticking around for the long haul in the case of like uh, 
Erica and also Mike Boogie, you could say, who, outside of his association with Will, where many would argue Will did the bulk of the heavy lifting there, like, he was that head scratcher who would not have made it if it was just on their own uh, reputation. And so, based on that precedent, if you had to uh, call your shot and pick a winner from this cast that's coming in, poverty would not be a bad idea, just based on that metric uh, alone. Um, and we can see as the season develops uh, how much that kind of uh, underestimation leads to her getting this this benefit in the game in a way that's easy to to pick up upon. But there are two later wrinkles to to work into that equation. The first is that in this very episode we have yet another big uh, like parallel universe kind of moment here where uh, Fair Play. Uh, maintained at the time and still does to this day that his uh, don't call it a quit is what uh, saved poverty at that first tribal council and then if that's the case then that massively alters uh, actually maybe it doesn't massively alter the season but certainly massively alters poverty's place in survivor history because that's where her place in history would stop if she is the first boot here then she doesn't come back for heroes versus villains and then doesn't have that third, I would say, legacy cementing performance in that season. Because uh, coming out of Micronesia at a time where she is now a Survivor winner, even then, her win was seen as kind of a, like, okay, people had more respect for her than they did coming in, but she wasn't yet seen as, like, this uh, this iconic winner, this iconic female player that every single person is going to list as the, the person they most want to emulate. Uh, and by the time we get to Heroes vs. Villains, enough myth-making has taken place that uh, you know, when they're all on that uh, that map there, uh, Jeff is picking her up as one of the most iconic female villains of all time, and she's kind of playfully uh, you know, uh, leaning into that as well. And then we, we see that the reaction to her when they're out there, uh, it, like it, she's seen as like radioactive. Like she is this... Uh, she, she is the Manny to Manthe of the season, right? Like she has taken over that mantle. She is this like all devouring uh, vixen who, if if you let your guard down for one second, she's going to beguile you with her wicked ways and you, you won't know what hits you. At the time in 2008, coming out of the season, that was not the perception. Uh, she was seen as a, a winner, but not the winner, like not the all-time great survivor winner. And if anything, more of the conversation was over all of the crazy events that had happened until that point and at the final hurdle, isn't it a shame that Sari was robbed of her rightful title instead? Um, right, I, so... I feel like it was kind of a head-scratcher that Parvati was viewed as such a big threat at the beginning of Heroes vs. Yes. Villains, even knowing she was a winner. Yeah, and so she is the best example, naturally, of a wider point about the season, which is, even though it is an interesting one to revisit in its own right, and, and that's why we're here uh, now in the first place, in one sense, it's almost like this staging post for people who then go on to bigger and better things hopefully so uh like sari for example when she uh falls at the final hurdle here because she uh had made such an impact the first time around and now gets to do that a second time even though she doesn't ultimately win that cements her reputation for life. And so, yeah, she goes out early in Heroes vs. Villains, doesn't really matter at that point, and then by the time we get to Game Changers, the name Sari Fields means so much to so many people that even after, what is it, six, seven years since she last played, like, she's definitely in the mix to come back again. Um, 
Whereas for poverty, like Cook Island's poverty was a non-entity, and even poverty this season, in the season that she actually won, is kind of uh, whatever. But her coming back and then doing that again in Heroes versus Villains, that's what really launches poverty into the stratosphere and makes her this all-time great. By contrast, you have um, like Yaman we mentioned as an example, someone who like think about the universe where Yaman like goes deeper in this season and then is able to make it onto Heroes vs. Villains, if he has at least two and maybe a third uh, really memorable Survivor appearances, like he might be up there in like the Rupert tier of just, uh, like he is one of the, the faces of the franchise, one of the names you associate with Survivor. And instead, his reputation just kind of dropped off a bit after the season. People remember him fondly, certainly, but you just don't hear as much talk about him as maybe you would have expected coming out of Fiji knowing he was slated to return soon. Totally, yeah. And thinking about all of these parallels universe <laughs> turns out dom there might be a huge amount of variance in survivor and the smallest things may have massive ramifications and people running really good or really bad can completely warp our perceptions of them i don't know just a theory i'm working on there uh let's get into some of those that either we wanted to see, but maybe they said no, or people that weren't asked very unjustifiably. Uh, and it's come up a couple of times, but is it for sure the case that Courtney declined this? Because I think that does make sense, but I'm not 100% sure that that happened. But I think, you know, if Courtney says yes, Amanda is probably not going to be here. And that's another illustration of like someone who would then, you know, go on to be a three-time player. She plays over a hundred days in a row without getting voted out. Uh, Courtney, though, larger point here is someone I think would have been probably in the locks category if she had been willing to say yes. I, I believe so. I think she was a bit ambivalent about just the idea of survivor itself at that point. And also uh, that, having such a quick turnaround from China to Survivor, like, wait, from from China to Micronesia, excuse me, uh, I don't think her body had fully recovered yet. I think that she was still kind of working to get back to normal after that, didn't want to dive back in so soon. Okay. Uh, And then just kind of working backwards, I don't think there were any, like, enormous snubs as far as I would be concerned from either of Fiji or Cook Islands. I think they got the people that they wanted and i as much as i did love plenty of others who were not in this cast uh from both of those seasons i don't think it's like crazy that they ended up with who they ended up with or missed out on anyone enormous although let me ask just because this is uh someone we will not see on this season but somehow uh all due respect go on to see on multiple other seasons in the future was candace asked for this i i think the story is that she wasn't had to decline because of uh med school obligations okay i because it certainly seems to me like they were very interested in candace as a returnee later on obviously uh so that feels a bit weird that she wouldn't be here, but that does check out uh, if, if she's off being a doctor or whatever. Uh, but let's go to Survivor Panama colon Exile Island, uh, a name that I know has certainly been at the very least in the mix for several different returnee seasons. And I feel like he would have been a pretty solid fit on this uh, particular one. 
Shane Powers, I feel like, was probably one of the bigger surprises to not be in this cast. And furthermore, Terry Dietz also may stand out as someone that would be kind of actively surprising to not see here. I never quite know uh, what to make of Shane as a possible returning player, because I I think the official story is he's been in the mix on a number of occasions and uh, most famously and also possibly apocryphally uh, was the last man out for Heroes vs. Villains once Russell entered the equation as a a lock for that cast. Um, And so, yeah, it would not surprise me if he was in the mix to come back here at the same time. He's another guy who has had an uneasy relationship with Jeff and also just with the show Survivor and has been like vocally critical of it uh, and a lot of the people at the heart of it uh, across the years. And so uh, I I don't know what the state of play was with uh, production and Shane at that time. Uh, Really could see it going anyway there. I I know Shane has talked about that at great length on RHAP, but I don't remember the exact specifics there. But for anyone curious, I'm sure you can find that. over there over to guatemala the only person that i feel like really stands out to me is like how were they not included in this sort of situation would be rafe but it may be the case that he was already just like too successful to go back on survivor i don't know i I, yeah i I don't know if he had uh reached his current lofty heights at that point i think it was more just that Guatemala did not really exist as far as they were concerned. And uh, until Danny came back for Winners of War, this was like the the one most memorable thing about Guatemala was precisely that no one had returned from it, unlike basically every other Survivor season. Yeah. I mean, I guess we do have Steph in Heroes versus Villains, but not for very long. Uh, And Steph, primarily a, I think, kind of Palau person. in that sort of context there, even though she did. Although that is maybe a useful piece of context to raise for Micronesia, because if you're thinking about doing a season of uh, fans versus favorites, then it's not a perfect crossover, but watching how the various uh, players, I don't know if all of them are fans necessarily, but most of them at first seem to be fans of both Stephanie and Bobby John in Guatemala. And then Bobby John effortlessly kind of uh, became just one of the crowd to the point where you almost forgot that A, he was there, and B, that he had actually played before yeah. <laughs> by the time he gets voted out on that season. And then Stephanie uh, goes all the way, but tor- uh, like torpedoes her own legacy in the process, ends up losing in the finals, and uh, even though she became this like season-defining character, uh, it felt like her presence there was... Uh, manageable in the sense that it, it was ever going to be this uh, like boss and rob uh, cruise to the finish line um so maybe that was a reassuring precedent for them to see play out where it's like yeah we, we can mix these two streams and it's not going to end in a uh, disaster there but it did also mean that one uh female returnee who would have been the biggest mortal lock out of anyone to return for a fans versus favorite season had already been uh used or wasted depending on your point of view in this like weird interlude in between. And so unless you're willing for Stephanie to be the first three times survivor player, which would not be out of the question maybe, but um, I I don't think they were willing to pull the trigger there just yet. uh, Then that's someone who is off the board. And then that's where you see this kind of a lack of star power in play because you take out Stephanie. And if you're disqualifying the winners by default, then it's like, well, 
filling out a four roster from there actually does become pretty tricky. It, totally, yeah. And I believe uh, both Judd and Lydia were at least in the mix to return to this season, but I think a lot of people were probably kind of in the mix to return to this season, uh, and I don't think it's a huge shock to not see either one of them there. And I will definitely grant that if we're talking about the context of people whose first season was Guatemala, we do have to go 15 years until Danny Boatwright on winners at war to actually finally get someone from the Guatemala cast back there. And then Palau would not have been surprised at all to see either of Ian or Katie end up coming back here from Micronesia. And Ian actually may be one that surprises me to not see him back here, but he may have uh, been over Survivor by the time this rolled around, based on how the first time ended. Yeah, the other thing too is, uh, so the the story you hear in some places is that this was meant to be a full All-Star season, and then they couldn't get some of those big names, and at that point it's like, well, what's the use of having 13 to 14 people we actually want, and then having to make out the numbers, versus cutting the weakest members from that list and then filling it out with fans and getting to do this this novel fans versus favorites uh concept but uh when you have people like uh, like tom westman for example who they were not going to let survivor end without having tom westman back for a second time if that could possibly be in the cards whatsoever right but then uh if you can't uh if you're not having winners or like you don't want Tom to be the only winner at the same time. So you, you have to find some other opportunity where that would make sense. I wonder if heroes versus villains as a concept was already kind of uh, on the horizon at this point or some like actual full all-star season, which it is weird because if you, if you do this season first, then you run the risk of what happened with Guatemala happening on this much larger scale where it, if you, I guess one way you get around it is just you have the same people back almost immediately for a third time, right? So Amanda plays Survivor three times in the course of like two and a half years, and no one was really asking for any of those appearances. But um, like, there, there is the concern that okay, we we bring a bunch of potential candidates for All Stars back now. Some of them will flop. Some of them will do okay, but not not great in a way that makes you want them back for a third time. And you've kind of seen all there is to see there. And at that point, actually finding enough people to join those really big names like the Tom Westmans and, and so on, unless you're willing to like almost go back in time and grab people from the first All-Stars to make that a three-time a three time thing, it, it's just really hard to make up the numbers uh, however you slice it. And that's the same thing that we came to see a lot later on, where it's like, okay, did we need to spend all of these potential returning players on game changers of all seasons or uh, that era where it felt like people were coming back either every season or every other season? There are a lot of names where it's either this person is going to be a four-time survivor player somehow, and I'm not quite sure why, or they could have been used on a better season and instead we're just almost using this as a dumping ground for them, if that makes sense. Right. And I, I think Heroes versus Villains was greatly aided by waiting a little while where they then had the room to bring back people like Parvati, for instance, or Amanda, who really cemented their reputation on this very season. And then they did lean pretty hard into both season 17 and 18, where I, I think, what do we have? We have four people, Parvati, Amanda, Sari, James, at least. We have... Sugar and Randy, and then we have 
Tyson, Coach, and JT. So almost half of the Heroes versus Villains cast was from people who either had never played Survivor before or largely uh, were not big enough names for some kind of like big blowout season prior to Micronesia existing. So I'm glad they held off there. And when you framed it as like, oh, well, we only really have like 13 people that we want to bring back and we don't want to force it. Where was that thought process during Game Changers? Where it was clearly like, (laughs) all right, we have five people that we want to bring back, but we're going to fill out this cast of 20 anyway. Yeah, and looking ahead to Heroes vs. Villains, the whole uh, Micronesia cabal or the threat of that that's looming over the season really, it seems, has a big impact on how things play out, where um, where you have Parvati and James and Sari and uh, Amanda. That's, like, firstly, James is kind of the odd man out there, and every word of that is relevant. He is odd, he is a man, and he is he is out, right? Like, he... <laughs> He was not part of that 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 final three that went all the way there. Um, so it's unclear if you can lump him in with. I guess he and Amanda still were on very good terms, but like, I don't know if uh, he and Poverty or he and Sri, you can like automatically assume that would have gone so well. Um, and then between the three of them, uh, Poverty, Sri, and Amanda, you see Sri herself say that like. Yeah, Amanda chose Poverty over me. Poverty beat me in the end. You can't automatically lump me in with them as, well, of course, they're they're just going to get the band back together. And then once Poverty and Amanda did, in fact, reunite on that season, you saw from the outset, I think, just weren't right. And the two of them, there was bad blood, I think, going into that and even more coming out of it. And I think the two of them still have not made up and are not on good terms. So is that wait what Poverty and Amanda and Amanda are like beefing? As far as I know, yeah. I, I don't know that I'd ever heard that, but that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so it, it makes sense for people to worry about that. But in practice, like the threat of that was almost more of an illusion than it was uh, a, a, ever actually a reality. Yeah, uh, and then assuming, with the exception of Johnny Fairplay, that they were not going out of their way to pull from the first seven seasons... I do want to touch on, uh, as previously promised, now promises being kept here, a person from Vanuatu that it never sits right with me is not on this cast. Uh, I still haven't forgiven Jeff Probst to this day that we have never seen Twyla Tanner back on Survivor. I feel like she was exactly what I would want in a returning player. It fits some demographics that I feel like are sorely missing from a lot of seasons right around this era of the show justice for twyla dom yeah i twyla i she is one of the uh the leading lights of vanuatu for me uh she really helped to make that season what it is one of the most compelling just characters and players to watch that we'd seen in a long time at that point and someone who felt very old school both in terms of the like morality play aspect of survivor and then she was a literal old school player in a cast where you had a a bunch of these younger women who were from just a very different generation with a different mindset and seeing the the uh the the age gap there was uh yeah a really kind of socially compelling part of that season too i think totally yeah uh so let me ask you this dom before we dive into the action i was thinking to myself 
who do the casual fans immediately recognize from this favorites tribe? However many years it is later, I of course turned to my great friend in real life who is a casual Survivor fan herself, casual Anna. I sent her a picture of this favorites tribe and her initial reaction was, what is that? Uh, not knowing that this was a group of people who had ever even necessarily played Survivor. But upon zooming in, Dom, I will ask you, which of the people on this favorites tribe do you think casual Anna recognized in the year 2022? Okay, I'm going to say James is a certainty. And if, if James is not on the list, then I, God knows where I go from there. James is not on the list. Oh, dick. <laughs> uh... Okay. I, I think guess, for what it's worth, I thought James would be one for sure. Yeah, it, it, maybe that makes sense given his last appearance was, what, 12 years ago at this point? Uh, how recently was this, uh, did, did this interrogation take place? Uh, a couple of days ago at this point, so I doubt much has changed since then. Hmm. I assume Sari does make the list? Sari eventually made the list. Uh, okay, just some coaxing. Yeah, so the way this played out is I sent her the photo. She said, what is that? And I said, it's the favorite tribe, the favorites <laughs> tribe from the original fans versus favorites. And then she said, literally only know Parvati. Uh, and then I said, you absolutely know at least one or two more here. <laughs> and then she said, Ozzy, is that the hot guy next to Parvati? And I said, yeah, he just has short hair. And she responded, He's so hot. Uh, and that was the end of who she definitely recognized. But then uh, I said, you you surely know this woman on the far left as well. And she said, oh, OK, that's Suri. So uh, never ended up getting to James, but she did immediately know Parvati, eventually got to Ozzy and Suri. And I don't think she would even remember most of the others if I told her their names. I think if I told her their names, I think she would at least remember Amanda. Uh, but I'm I'm honestly not sure if she would get it. Johnny Fairplay is a name she would know, but I don't think she would have ever recognized him. See, I think Amanda might be the most forgettable person on the cast, despite having played at one point, was it more days than any other contestant, or at least in like the top two or three there? I, I, she must have held that record after Heroes vs. Villains, right? Well, I think Poverty also was go making a deep run there at the same time. Um, you might be right. It's, it's close. And I actually, and I never ended up pressing her on James who to be fair is in the back of this photo and you can't really see the real size and physique on him, uh, that may have been the general indicator one is looking for when trying to identify James. Uh, so I think James might be a name she would know as well. And on it, you know what? Let's give casual in a, some credit. I think she might remember the name Jonathan Penner, but I'm not certain about that. Does she remember the name Yaman in any capacity? I can't imagine so. Uh, and, and I don't know if she's ever even seen Fiji. It might be one of the few that she skipped along the way. But long story short, uh, a little less than I was expecting from uh, casual Anna's memory of it, but I don't think it's a surprise. And I think for the most part, even the fans who have watched every season as they aired in real time, as sad as it is to say, I don't know how many of them would necessarily even remember Yao Man or Amy or some of these others that really uh, sit fondly in the hearts of like Survivor Superfans who've rewatched the seasons. Yeah, Amy's another one who 
made a massive impression in Vanuatu and then really did not this time around. And in some cases, like Yaman, I would say, you, you could tell that Yaman is there and is like recognizably Yaman. It just didn't work out for them this time around. Uh, but even in this first episode, which I promise we will actually get to the details of here at some point, <laughs> like you see him, uh, you know, slamming fair play into the boat and holding the idol up above his head. And like, there's a lot of uh, Yaman antics that is good to see again. In Amy's case, it really felt like she was a totally different person. And I think that uh, I might be mixing her up with someone else, but I think there might have been some like, she was still going through some grief from like losing a, a loved one or something, or that there was some something weighing on her mind to where like she was not the like just like cutthroat uh you know girl boss or whatever that she seemed to be the first time around try this on for size given the way that the candidates ended up looking for the second chance ballot on season 31 assuming she would make the cut which is a big big assumption that i don't think is actually necessarily true but i feel like i would have rather seen amy many years later rather than a couple years later especially if she was in kind of a bad state of mind to be playing survivor i feel like she could have been an awesome kind of deep cut person to have on survivor 31 the same way that we had uh a few people who ended up like a kimmy kappenberg or whatever there mm-hmm. uh i feel like amy would have been a very good fit for that for sure yeah yeah i think i maybe one issue here is uh so you have amy you have eliza i guess if you add Twyla to the mix, then I don't know if uh, Eliza and Twyla have really mended any fences in between or if uh, Amy and Twyla have recovered from their spat at that uh, final tribal there. Uh, but there is a concern of just having too much of one cohort from one season there. And like Eliza and Amy and Twyla is three Vanuatu women on a tribe of 10 favorites. Like maybe, you know, you have to pick two out of the three at that yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, and Incidentally, even though she didn't get, it seems based on, uh, you know, just hearing people from Vanuatu talk about it, nearly the kind of credit in the TV episodes that she deserved. I feel like Leanne would have potentially been another compelling person from that women's tribe on Vanuatu to return. Uh, either. I don't know. Okay, so I, I feel like the whole thing about actually Leanne was the one uh, running the show in Vanuatu. That, that's one of the things which you say to show off the fact that you're a heavily enfranchised survivor <laughs> fan and that you, you've read all of the exit interviews and that you, you, you've been combing through uh, obscure forum threads and back in the day. I don't know if, uh, in terms of like the, the text in front of you, if based on Vanuatu, you would necessarily want to see Liang come back again. I'm going to use the I'm not saying it, people are saying it defense here that Leanne... Yeah, more and more people are saying yeah, this. Yeah, every fact. day. Uh, Leanne could have, at least conceivably, in my mind, been a compelling returnee here. All right. Yeah, uh, I, I let... feel like in uh, the, the year 2022, Leanne is just on the tip of uh, everybody's tongue. Absolutely. So, Dom, enough meandering. Actually... One final piece of meandering here that I've been trying to organically weave in and have failed in the first a little over an hour to do so, but I did want to just note for the record, Dom, this is our first episode in the Dom has a puppy era of the Dom and Colin podcast. (laughs) How is that going? Going great so far. Uh, You are unlikely to hear the puppy, at least in this episode. Uh, It is currently uh, securely fastened in the, or fastened, uh, 
it, it is in the bedroom, and so if it like appears at the microphone, we have bigger problems to worry about it. But uh, yeah, I, I am pleasantly surprised by my my puppy experience. Uh, three days in, uh, she is a uh, delightful, has a, a face that will make your heart melt, uh, and yeah, I, I and the whole like logistical aspect of having a puppy has been. A little easier than I expected so far, but like firmly touching wood on that one. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> way to put the full-blown jinx on yourself in that respect. How is Ravioli the cat handling the new addition? I, I think he is mostly confused and uh, upset to not be the center of my universe anymore. Uh, I mean, he still mostly is, but uh, he at least has to compete for that title now. And the cat and the dog have reached this uh, like uneasy date on so far where... They're not uh, they're not getting into fights or anything, but usually what will happen several times a day is uh, Beanie, the dog, will scamper up to Ravioli and like chase him around the house for a little bit, and he eventually will kind of hiss and retreat under the bed, and then uh, they'll just ignore each other for a bit and uh, move on with their lives. All right, well, having seen a couple of photos of the dog and seen a short clip of you petting the dog, uh, I can confirm for the listeners at home that this is a very adorable creature, uh, and I'm very happy for you, Dom. Uh, all right, so now that the meandering is officially over, <laughs> let's dive in to this episode proper here. And one thing I had completely forgotten about, and stay tuned for that theme, by the way. It turns out, uh, having not seen this season in probably at least a decade or thereabouts, uh, has an impact on my ability to remember the specifics of what happens, especially the kind of... Uh, random non-game related stuff we show up here at this marooning on day one it is pouring rain as they're trying to do this kind of like exciting beginning ceremony here and they just kind of have to deal with it and i think it's a pretty good illustration of the aforementioned variance that goes into survivor there is plenty of that on the production side as well where the schedule just lined up like we have to do it right now even though it is pounding rain on jeff and all of these players here but we get our uh intro albeit a very brief one to the fans team as they're on their boat making their way to shore and then we get the come around the rock one at a time kind of reveal of all of the favorites we've, we've touched already on the very funny kind of like tepid intro that amanda gets and uh Yao firing me up and so forth. One other thing, though, that I had on that is when we get to, like, the grand finale and Johnny Fairplay prances around the rock uh, doing his hand gestures and whatever, he's dressed exactly like Jeff Probst with, like, his blue button-down shirt and khaki pants. And Jeff uh, has a very funny interaction with him here where he comments on, like, so what are you just dressing exactly like me and fair play tries to like give probes a little dig or jab or whatever and he says yeah man want to know what you're playing for and jeff responds to fair play by saying quote hey i'm happy to see you here i'm glad you've got aspirations to get out of your current place in life end quote uh which i had no memory of again and which i think dom at the risk of being hyperbolic which I absolutely avoid at all costs in general, this might be the single funniest thing I have ever heard Jeff Probst say. I thought that was so, <laughs> so solid. It, you can tell, especially uh, we just finished up Gabon, right, with some of the most infamous uh, editorializing in the previously on sequence we've ever seen on the show before. You can tell a lot of the time when Jeff uh, 
dislikes or just is openly disdainful of a particular contestant. Uh, but usually it's not personal in the sense of, uh, well, he doesn't think they're an interesting character, doesn't like the way they play Survivor, but probably has nothing against them in real life. With Fair Play, you can tell the two of them just fucking loathe each other. Um, and so that brings a whole, like, bite to it that we don't get to see normally yeah and i mean jeff over the course of this episode uh particularly at tribal council which we'll get to eventually uh really seems maybe not completely unprecedented in his willingness to like editorialize in real time as he's moderating these discussions among the players especially in light of like recent years where he really does seem to want to like put himself in the center of things and uh, give his takes on everything going on around him. But for this era of Jeff, this really, really stands out. And I love it, by the way, uh, in this sort of context here. But, uh, okay, we introduce all the players to the fans. They're varying degrees of excited uh, as they see each of these people come out one by one. And then straight away, we find out that there is going to be a twist in play on this season that, again, I didn't really have any memory of existing because it's not really going to play a huge role uh, to speak of in like how things play out, uh, where each tribe is going to have a personal immunity idol that is hidden somewhere on like the other side of this beach that you need to go across the water to get to where your tribe boats are waiting for you. And somewhere around there, there is an individual immunity idol. And the first person to get it uh, is going to be safe at the first tribal council that they attend. Uh, we actually, we saw a similar thing in play in Gabon with that first challenge where everyone was running up the hill and the first person to get there for each tribe was guaranteed safe at their first vote. And I know Palau uh, had a similar sort of mechanism where there were two idols and those people would end up being captains. And as it turns out, not safe uh, in one of their cases at those first tribal councils there. Uh, but it is ultimately going to be Yao man who comes up with this for the favorites after everyone is like rushing over and like frantically scrambling their way through the water. Johnny Fairplay is like casually moseying his way over on the grounds of like, Hey, slow and steady wins the race. Uh, and it somehow ends up working out for him at first. It seems, uh, this time around where he's one of the last people to show up on the beach, but he does the math that like, well, the idol is going to be somewhere we can see it. And he goes over to the boats and sees just idols hanging off the front of each of the boats. He grabs the idol. Turns out, wrong idol. He grabbed the one from the other team's boat, and Yao Man is not far away from him. And they both seem to piece together right away that that is what happened. And they have this, like, five-foot mad dash to the next boat over. And Yao Man is ultimately going to be the one who comes up to it after... <laughs> slamming Johnny Fairplay's already injured head into the side of that boat. Yeah, just uh, trying to knock a few more teeth out there to, to get those gums fully empty. Yeah, and then Kathy, of all people, is going to be relatively nearby the two of them, and she doesn't seem to understand what just went down there. Maybe she missed the kind of like altercation they had in trying to gun for the idol for their team, but it literally is just Yao Man 
points out to her, hey, pick that thing up and you're safe. And she does so. And she's really excited uh, about being immune for that team's first vote and excited she should be, as it turns out, uh, considering her ability to blend in. That and also I think she was excited that just... Yao Man and Johnny mm-hmm. Fairplay were like in front of her, uh, engaging this weird like wrestling match and like addressing her in person. Like she, you can question the the fan moniker for some of the people on the season. I think Kathy is a fan. I think she was legitimately overwhelmed by the experience of being out there, and it's the whole fans versus favorites concept nowadays. When the idea of the super fan is so heavily ingrained in the show and we're in an era i would say thankfully now where fans are the the vast majority of any given cast it, you almost take it for granted that if you had uh old players versus new players the new players just by default would be fans and so it's necessarily fans versus favorites back in the day that was not really the case and i think this is uh, one of the first times where the idea of i'm a survivor super fan is explicitly acknowledged by the show uh to any degree even though as i said some of those people could barely live up to that title yeah i think people existed intermittently prior to this point but this is the first time they're at least theoretically like leaning into that sort of thing especially as far as like the tv presentation is concerned and as you alluded to this may not necessarily even be the most apt time to be doing so, uh, considering some of the background with Survivor that some of the people who wound up on this fans tribe realistically had. And that would be a theme that would continue into Fans vs. Favorites 2, if what I have heard is accurate. But uh, yeah, you definitely are right that having people like verbalize being lifelong fans and seeing, you know, later on in the season... Eric at the loved ones challenge, like freaking out with his brother, like, oh, my God, Jeff Probst is standing right over there. I do think adds a a fun element for sure, although I probably could have found some greater fans uh, of the franchise, not to not to disparage the people who did end up making the cut here, because I do think they found uh, plenty of fun people along the way. Uh, The unfortunate part, Dom, is pretty much none of those people apart from Kathy are going to be featured in this premiere. Uh, And Kathy does definitely provide a solid amount of entertainment value here. And I'm sure there was a lot that got left on the cutting room floor. And we could have had week after week for as long as she was in the game of very entertaining, just Kathy footage taking up half of the episodes here. But unless I'm forgetting anything really obvious, it seemed like as far as like the fan content in this premiere is concerned, we got a couple of different scenes, mostly revolving around Kathy putting her foot in her mouth or rubbing people the wrong way or whatever the situation was cut in with some pretty quick confessionals from various people on the fans tribe, mostly the men, to be honest, uh, and virtually nothing else. Like we got, a couple like Mikey B confessionals and he seemed promising. We got to hear a bit from Chet, a little bit from Joel and then intermittently from Jason and Eric. But I'm, I I don't have the confessional chart directly in front of me. Having watched this episode two or three days ago at the time of this recording, I don't remember pretty much anything that happened. If anything even made the cut 
from the fans women's side of things other than Kathy. And I do think that is a very noticeable uh, and criticism worthy. Hey, you you don't remember Tracy saying that fair play is a pig. He's a loser pig. I I sure don't. I I genuinely (laughs) don't (laughs) where I, I feel like the women on the fans tribe really did get done a pretty big disservice, not just in this episode, but for the bulk of the season, like even Natalie Bolton, who is someone that I know still stands out in the minds of a lot of Survivor superfans as a very entertaining player and someone that is often found on, like, returnee wish lists over the years. As big of a uh, eventual kind of rise as she's going to have near the end of her run here, she is, if memory serves, almost entirely invisible for something like 11 straight episodes before we get to that end game. Yeah, and that's why those uh, calls for her to come back fall on deaf ears me, because she has essentially one, uh, you know, she's, she's a part of that uh, move to get Eric to give up immunity, and she has some very, like, out-of-nowhere OTT quotes about uh, flossing with his juggler or whatever. But before that point, she is nowhere to be seen on the entire season. And Alexis as well, and not quite to the same extent, but she is not a big character until she gets fully subsumed into the, the Black Widow's Brigade. Um, and so beyond that, you have uh, Mary, who uh, whose only claim to fame is being the person who Kathy didn't know existed. And then you have Kathy herself. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the fans women are uh, kind of barely a presence in the season for, for most of it. Uh, and then the fans men are more vocal and more out there, but don't seem primed for success based on what we see from them early. So it does seem like this is going to be just a massacre of the uh, the fans by the favorites until uh, we get to the immunity challenge and the fans are able to, uh, to pretty easily beat this uh, completely dysfunctional uh, favorites tribe. Right. And uh, just to quickly add before the immunity challenge, as far as like camp life was concerned, on the favorite side of things, there wasn't even that much notable going on outside of the like politicking about the vote and Johnny Fairplay potentially wanting to quit here. But I did want to say James talking about how happy he was to finally be on a tribe with people who were happy to like work hard around camp. Maybe the most like sincere and enthusiastic James content that we get over the course of his entire three seasons where like he is so thrilled to not be around like in his mind, I think like complete slackers and like he's excited beyond words to be able to just go do hard work all day, uh, which I thought was really funny there. And then right. He uh, we mentioned from time to time. uh people who turn up on Survivor when it seems like they're really more cut out for the challenge. And that is an explicit pipeline these days of you go on Survivor and then uh, maybe you don't do so well there, but you get uh, plucked from that obscurity and then cast on the challenge. So, you know, Jonathan from this most most recent season, I imagine uh, we'll see there before too long. Uh, we've mentioned James as the perfect example of that, but having just finished uh, Survivor Gabon, where Bob gets famously called out by Kenny as someone who is just there to build things. That applies perfectly to James, I think. He doesn't even want to compete in the challenges so much as just, like, do hard physical labor. And if if he comes back on another reality show, that should be it. It should be a, a tribe of, like, Jameses and 
bobs uh, and so on, just competing with each other to like dig holes or something. But to a certain extent, it is almost surprising that James ended up wanting to play three times, considering the borderline active disdain he seemed to have for like the actual game element of Survivor. Yeah, and especially going into Heroes as his villains, where you you would think by that point he should have realized that what the show is about is not really what he is about or not what he is on the show for. And if any season is going to be less about the old school survival aspect and more about a uh, fast paced card throw strategy, it's going to be that one. And so uh, James taken out before his time there, yet another unfortunate matter of fact, but I kind of feel like his uh, goose was cooked on that season regardless. Yeah. And then the other random camp life note that I had for the favorites team is we see Yao Man attempting to make fire with his glasses. I honestly, I don't even remember if they got it or not. I'm pretty sure they did. Uh, but I certainly remember BB all the way back in season one doing this same thing. But it's wild to me how infrequently that happens. And I, I feel like there's something to like what type of glass, like whether you're nearsighted or farsighted or whatever. But it's, it feels to me like enough people have worn glasses over the course of survivor history that i'm very surprised this wasn't like a super standard kind of thing that we would see way more seasons than not of people trying to make fire with their glasses yes and this seems like one of the easier ways to smuggle in an item that could be relevant to the game under the guise of i actually have some like legitimate medical need for this right oh i think it's highly relevant like if this were a more popular thing, the swing between having someone with the right type of glasses or not on your team could be enormous. But, you know, having fire versus not having fire in those early days in particular, uh, I have to imagine would be a very big deal. Uh, there, It may be the case that they, like, weren't allowed to do it or whatever, but, like, I, I really have a hard time coming up with how this wasn't way more of a standard thing on Survivor for a long time. Uh, either way, let's dive in. Uh, and, Dom, as you mentioned, the fans are going to run away with this first immunity challenge, and even though I think the general idea with a fans versus favorites season is, well, we as the producers want the favorites to really be the ones kind of running the show deep in the game and bringing in reliable viewers that we know already like them. I also think having the fans win the first immunity challenge is by a pretty wide margin, the desired result on a fans versus favorites season where a premiere is going to be so much more exciting. If we get to watch these people, we already know and have been looking forward to seeing interact with each other, go to this first vote. And uh, we saw the same thing incidentally, on the second iteration of fans versus favorites. And I think both seasons benefited pretty greatly from having the challenge go that way. Especially uh, the second time where if, if Francesca is the first one now on the favorites tribe, but they go to tribal second and she's only the second boot in, in theory, it's the same outcome in a lot of ways, but the actual gravity of it is so much less important. Right. And there was so, so much has been made out of her being the, the first and only two-time first boot. But uh, yeah, I would not have that one any other way. Uh, and I think it does help on both ends there, where it is so easy for a tribe of fans who know that in terms of game experience, challenge experience, and so on, they are going to be hopelessly outmatched by the favorites. 
if they get off of this early losing streak and that uh, persists for any length of time, it is so easy for them to get completely demoralized and for the game to effectively be over before it's even begun. And I think starting off with a win is a good way for them to tell themselves that, no, no, we, we can uh, we can compete with the best of them. Uh, and then, as you say, for, for the favorites, I think it lo- losing that first challenge and having to vote someone out first, I think, is humbling to some extent, although maybe not always as much as it should be. And also losing potentially one of your favorites as a viewer in the very first episode makes it here home that, yeah, look, uh, nothing is sacred on the season. The person who you have been waiting years to see come back really could go at, at any time here. I wonder how much that kind of set of incentives for the producers played into just casting the fans tribe in general. Like the first thought I had was I wonder if Joel was specifically put on there because they knew James would be on there and they needed someone who could like physically hang with him. But I then started thinking, you know, Jason and Eric in particular are like very well seasoned athletes in whatever surfing or track and field and things of that nature that they've been into in the past. Mikey B uh, certainly seems like he can hold his own. And yeah, you have Chet there as well. Maybe not uh, the challenge MVP, but over on the, the fans or excuse me, over on the favorites side, other than James, and I guess maybe a case could be made for Amanda uh, to some extent being really good in the challenges, but like Penner and Yao Man and Sari are probably not uh, going to be key contributors in most things that are like intensely physical. And I do wonder if there was a conscious effort made to make sure that the fans could get their share at the very least of challenge wins early. I imagine there was, and I think there's another level to that uh, as well, where once you have Ozzy on the Favorites Tribe, casting people like Eric and Jason uh, on on the fans team, it it does a few different things. I forgot about Ozzy, by the way. Probably should have flagged him up in the challenge beast uh, discussion. Sorry about that. Yeah, so uh, on the one hand, you have, uh, like, Suri or whatever. On the other hand, uh, you have Ozzy. So don't know where that one comes out in the wash. But uh, I think casting people like that those are like athlete fans it does a few different things so firstly it means that the two tribes are on a more equal footing which i think you need for the challenges themselves to be at all interesting uh it also means that the good challenge performers on the favorites team become more important so if if you would ideally like to keep ozzy around for longer or james around for longer uh then one good way to do that is to increase their importance to their tribe by having these great competitors on the other team who like, yeah, we need James uh, to go against Joel in case there's like a test of physical strength or we need people like uh, Ozzy who, you know, we're just going to lose in a foot race to, to Eric and, and Jason. Otherwise, it, it makes those people more likely to stick around. And then later on, when if there is a swap, if there is a merge, uh, I think that the idea of getting to compete against Ozzy for someone like Eric is in a perverse way, an incentive to keep that person around so that you can go up against them in the challenges. Totally. Um, especially in like the post-swap but pre-merge portion of, of the game. Um, and then on top of that too, I think that there's just a level of respect that comes with this guy is my idol and he's my idol because he's so good in this one aspect of the game where I think I I can be really good and want to be really good as well. And so I think 
we, we see this where Eric is left on the out of the Aussie blind side, and Jason is included insofar as he has to be, but I think he only really goes along with it because uh, he he knew that his name was on the block and Aussie was the one really pushing for it, and Eliza had put the bug in his ear to, to go after Aussie. And so, uh, barring all of that, I think Aussie very easily could have taken Jason under his wing if he had wanted to uh, as well. Yeah, I think that is uh, an excellent point for sure. So as far as the dynamics uh, playing out here in the early days on this favorites tribe, it seems like they waste very little time kind of linking up into pairs here. Uh, Notably, Parvati gets her hooks into James right away. Uh, Amanda and Ozzy are coupling up, it seems, pretty quickly here. And I don't know that this is the case, but it seems like they weren't even really like trying to hide that. Uh, And so right off the bat, those four together appear at the very least to be a a pretty formidable alliance in the early stages of development here. And noticing that uh, everyone else on the tribe starts freaking out that they could just have no room to play if those four end up, you know, making it through a couple votes and bring in someone else. Uh, that's just the simple majority straight off. And so from the people outside of that group, we see uh, Eliza, Amy, Yao Man, and Penner. It seems like potentially as early as day one, although I don't think we got uh, necessarily the like day one kind of caption to, to clarify this, but certainly in the first day or two, those four are like shaking hands and making a, a firm alliance. And immediately we are in this dynamic of kind of a four on four with Johnny Fairplay and Sari of all people in the middle. And I, I certainly did remember that that was the kind of dynamic, but I had forgotten entirely that Sari Fields, one of, if not the strongest kind of like social strategic players of all time is somehow one of the only people not included in any of these alliances. And, you know, we'll go on to see her essentially take this entire group of showmances under her wing and really call most of the shots for the bulk of the season here. But it is wild seeing Sari Fields kind of be on the outs. And I, I feel like we can, we may have gotten something similar at the beginning of Game Changers as well. And we saw her turn things around there, too. Yeah, and... She's not included early on, but she gets to be the swing vote. And her choice, as much as I love Sari Fields, it sets the season on this trajectory where sometimes you you see these uh, splits in a tribe start to form and these, these two sides develop. But it, it seems like there's no real rhyme or reason to who ends up on which side other than you have to be end up somewhere. Uh, this time around, there is this very clear just... Uh, vibe difference if you like between these two groups where i would say anyone watching either identifies much more strongly either with the amanda and ozzy james and poverty group over here or with the penna yaman eliza and amy group over here and as someone who is very much more in the the latter camp uh seeing sari side with the showmances and uh not you know progressively start to knock off my favorites that as much as I understand that was a smart choice and a choice that made sense, especially given the way that Penna and Yao Man uh, didn't do themselves any favors, and we'll get to that in, in their respective boot episodes, um, it, it did hurt to see that. And like, 
I, I do wonder sometimes what if that choice has gone the other way. I totally am with you, and I think Sari seems like a more natural fit for the non-showmance kind of side of things, the like interesting characters and people gaming pretty hard for the most part out there. But as you said, and I agree, I think she did make the smart choice, uh, and we'll go on to see again her really being kind of the puppet master as far as I'm concerned for a lot of how these votes end up going because I think she viewed the showman side of things as more malleable uh, and, you know, strings she could more easily pull compared to a lot of the people on the other side who I would qualify as much more independent thinkers who would be more liable to potentially recognize what she was doing and turn the tables on her sooner uh, than the others ultimately proved to do there. Uh, So it seems like it's going to be Sari and Johnny Fairplay kind of determining which of Parvati or Eliza is going to be the first boot here. Uh, One camp really wants Eliza out. The other side really wants Parvati out. But we get this interesting development here where fully recognizing it seems and as far as i've ever known accurately so the idea that he is somehow in no kind of immediate danger here johnny fairplay is kind of out of the blue it it certainly at least sneaks up on me in the way the episode is presented going to have a change of heart where we get several scenes of him talking about how great it is to be the swing vote and everyone trusts him and have they never seen this show before but by the time tribal council or the the morning of uh rolls around he is sincerely very ready to get out of there and like actively campaigning for people to just put their votes on him and you know knowing the full context of he has this seven-month pregnant girlfriend back home and the prospect of becoming a dad is doing a lot of things to his mind that he didn't anticipate in just being back out there on the island and away from them for the foreseeable future and furthermore you know having again just been body slammed by Danny Bonaducci and still physically recovering from that uh he's going around asking people on both sides of this situation to just make it easy and vote him out. And I think in the moment, unless I had heard somehow in like the pregame buildup to all of this about both of those things happening about like his girlfriend being pregnant and about Danny Bonaducci body slamming him at some awards show. I think I would be echoing a lot of the same sentiments that we at least hear from uh, Yao Man for sure and Eliza for sure. And I think some others along the way of, okay, this is what Johnny Fairplay is saying. What's the scam? What's the ruse? What am I missing about why he is trying to bait me down this obviously ridiculous path of him actually wanting to be the first one out? Mm -hmm. And from what you remember of how he described it to us, like what was his take on, on all of those events there? So... From what I remember, uh, and probably could have done my due diligence and gone back and listened to uh, what he had to say about this before doing this podcast, but I, I think I have an okay grasp on the way this played out from his perspective, is he was sincerely worried about anything potentially like going wrong with the pregnancy back home, and it was kind of a shocking 
situation to be back out there on the island with like zero contact and in this completely different headspace than he was his first time around as like a single and ready to mingle 30 year old degenerate i uh, i think though the much more pressing issue in his mind uh that was not really presented on tv for pretty understanding understandable reasons was not so much to do with the pregnant girlfriend back home, but the lack of pain meds, uh, where not only I think he may have not known that he wasn't going to be allowed to take them, but even if he did know, I think he was suffering from more kind of effects of not having those than he was anticipating. And if memory serves, I think what really pushed him over the edge was begging the producers for some sort of pain medication. They wouldn't give it to him. And then he somehow like walked over to James on the beach and James had nicotine gum that the producers were willing to give to James. And that I think made him just kind of lose it and not want to be there anymore. That James is getting what he needs and I'm not getting even any amount of very necessary pain meds. I think that in his mind kind of cemented, get me the fuck out of here. Yeah. I think uh, a part of what you hear about this is it's not just the refusal to give him meds. It's the refusal to give him meds in a spot where a lot of other people uh, potentially would have been given meds or in the case of uh, James in that anecdote, just like were being given stuff, which officially you're not meant to have out there on the Island. And so that then prompts the obvious question of if this was someone who was not engaged in a very bitter and very public feud with the host of the show, would uh, more allowances have been made? And I, I suspect the answer probably is yes. I think you may not be wrong about that, although obviously can't say it conclusively, but uh, wouldn't surprise me at all. And so everyone, I think, again, very fairly has their own skepticism about what Johnny Fairplay might be up to. But it seems like by the time they get to tribal council, most of them are sold on the idea of, okay, I guess we're just going to vote out Johnny Fairplay here this week and uh, abide by his wishes to leave the game with the one possible exception, Dom, of Jeff Probst, who has a lot to say to Johnny Fairplay about how all of this is playing out. Uh, he, I think is skeptical and understandably about the rationale of, Oh, I just miss my girlfriend so much and she's pregnant and I'm nervous about that. Uh, I want to roll a clip here of Jeff at this tribal council. I think trying to suggest to the other players and to fair play himself that like survivors just harder than he remembers. And so uh, let's hear this exchange at the vote between Jeff and Johnny Fairplay. Johnny Fairplay, probably nobody in this game has a bigger reputation than you. I agree. Can that be an advantage? Honestly, uh, I think everyone here was kind of surprised with the real Johnny Fairplay, I guess. And I can easily say I feel that all of them trust me. But at the same time, like, my head's kind of screwed up right now. I have a little baby on the way, and honestly, all I think about is my little baby Piper okay? You know, like, that's all that's going through my head. I mean, I'm like, you know, am I being a crappy dad by being here? But you're not a father yet. I, I, yeah, I'm this close. I mean, I had no idea that I was going to think like this once I got here. I mean, I don't have a kid. I'm about to have one, and guess what? It changes you. It changes your head. It makes you crazy. So if you want to go home, 
or you had a bad afternoon and now you're trying to recover. You know, last time I learned how to be Johnny Fairplay and be an ass. This time, you know what? If I learn how to be a good dad, so be it. So, I mean, I just, you know, my head is screwy right now. Why are you smiling, Yao Min? Well, because my first thought is, you know, what's the scheme? It's a very strange thing to say to us suddenly just out of the blue. Ozzy, is this just simply a case of fair play can't hack it? It's much harder than he remembered, and he wants to go home. Jeff, I'll honestly tell you, no, I don't I don't think so. You can say what you want, Jeff. I don't I don't need this to put on a little show for you. I mean, honestly, like, I'm screwy right now. You know, emotions are going crazy in my head, and that's it. And it wasn't supposed to be this difficult. Jonathan, Fairplay has a reputation of pulling scams and lying. Just to be clear, what is he doing? I think he's asking us to vote for him. I think, you know, somebody has to go home, somebody wants to go home, and um, he's gonna go home. So it's a quit. This is not a quit. Forgive my skepticism, but last time you cried over a dead grandma who conveniently was at home watching on TV. I understand. Yes or no answer. Is this a quit? Eliza. No. This is not a quit. There is still a possibility in my mind that Fairplay is not going home tonight. I mean, I don't think there's one person who didn't bring their stuff with them. So we're still voting. Oh, we are voting. And I don't know if this necessarily translated to the audio-only version uh, of this clip, but Jeff, the look on Jeff's face when he's kind of going around the horn and asking Fair Play in particular, this is not a quit? Like, question mark, question mark, question mark. Like, Jeff seems firmly of the opinion that Fair Play is straight-up quitting, even though the other people on his team seem to be giving him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and fair play in the moment swears up and down. It's not a quit. It's not a quit. Uh, and again, everyone else seems to view it along roughly the same lines that fair play is. Uh, I certainly remember that when we had fair play on the podcast, I got to be close to 10 years ago at this point, we asked him, so was it a quit? And he was very quick to acknowledge it was absolutely a quit. Yes, I, although with qualifications about, uh, it was because I didn't get my meds and, and so on and so forth. If you want to call it a quit, I think that is a fair thing to call it, even though there may be an asterisk or two uh, by that. Yes, uh, so Johnny Fairplay, the shocking first boot of this season, and like sight unseen, I don't think it would be a surprise at all if you just went on Survivor Sucks back in 2007 or eight and saw the spoilers that... If there were spoilers, I don't even know. Uh, but if you just saw in the dark that Johnny Fairplay is the first boot, I think a lot of people would be doing the math of, of course, Johnny Fairplay is the first boot. How could anyone possibly trust him uh, the same way that, like, you know, the first time they got a shot at Richard Hatch, of course, they're going to take it. Uh, or, the you know, Russell on 22. Obviously, they're going to vote Russell out first from their tribe. I, I, I think it would track for sure if you thought it was just a reputation-based kind of shark tax situation. Uh, for Fairplay to be the first boot, though, in this manner, I do think is a huge surprise. Uh, and he does end up leaving here, Dom, by a unanimous vote. Uh, quick little blindside Dom with a trivia question segment here. Dom, who did Johnny Fairplay vote for? It, wait, in this tribal council? Yeah. 
Uh, I want to say Parvati? Question mark. It was not Parvati. Uh, I ah. didn't. I I didn't remember myself, and I, I I don't think Jeff even, at least on the TV cut, read the vote that Fair Play cast. I think it was just straight down the line, five or six votes for Johnny Fair Play. See you never. Uh, Fair Play. I. This is this is what it's like going back to four by three quality. I went to like when he was giving his final words and they show the montage of everyone casting their votes. I had it full screened on my pretty large television. And when it got to the part of fair play holding up his vote, I could not make out what he had written on the parchment. Uh, But according to Wikipedia and when I looked at what it said on Wikipedia next to the kind of grainy version of his vote. I could then see it knowing what I was supposed to be looking for. Johnny Fairplay cast his vote for Ozzy, of all people. So, uh, fun fact, there you go. Uh, but I did also want to bring up something that Fairplay definitely mentioned to us, which is he, I think, never would have been out there in the first place on this season if he had known that there would be some kind of future opportunities to go back on Survivor, such as a Heroes versus Villains, where he didn't have a seven months pregnant girlfriend and a toothache, to say the least, uh, given to him by Danny Bonaducci, where I am not trying to make excuses by any stretch for fair play in the way all of this played out, but I am willing to grant that circumstances were just about as brutal as he could have drawn it up for him to be back out there on Survivor at this time. Mm-hmm. And the reason I uh, I named Poverty there was he maintained at the time and, and still does that uh, he, as one of those swing votes, would have sided with the the Penner, Yaman, uh, Fair Play and Eliza group, or Fair Play and Eliza, uh, Amy and Eliza group, despite that initial run-in with uh, Yaman and would have voted out Poverty first. Like She would have been not the winner of the season, but the first boot, like the exact opposite outcome, and uh, has held up that across the years as an example of why poverty uh, is not a good winner because there, but for the grace of God, like she would have been voted out first. And I, I know that he has held this pretty strong, like personal contempt for her across that entire time, just doesn't respect her at all as a person. And I imagine the feeling is probably mutual. <laughs> um, and so, uh, there's definitely a kind of like strategic angle to that. And then also like a good personal drama angle, which is what we're all here for. I am now having my memory jogged, by the way, on Fairplay saying to us that he and Yao Man and Penner had like pregame together and were like a lock final three deal, at least in his mind. And I further am now having my memory jogged on when we had Yao Man on the podcast, him saying he had no idea what Johnny Fairplay was talking about uh, <laughs> as far as all of that was concerned. So we may need Penner to break the tie. Yeah, some uh, unreliable narration perhaps going on here. Yeah, uh, well, the good news for Johnny Fairplay is even though he's only in one episode, he does get the episode title this week. That's right. It's time for the glorious return of better known episode title. In this case, you guys are dumber than you look, uh, which he says to the fans at the Matt chat before the first immunity challenge when they don't believe that the favorites are out there like crushing it on a survivalism uh, 
from a survivalism kind of like point of view. And actually that might be the biggest takeaway that I didn't get to in any capacity when we were talking about just like camp life is the favorites are, it seems crushing the shelter and fire and food and whatever, while the fans are like one of the all time worst tribes I can remember uh, as far as like getting their own situation set up in the first couple of days. And that's probably a pretty good indication of just the general kind of imbalance between these two groups as far as like the bulk of the game is concerned is the favorites not only are probably just like better survivor players, whether they had played before or not, but like there's a huge advantage to be had in having set up a camp before and being familiar with the cameras being around and how the challenges go and so forth. Uh, maybe the main story as far as camp life is concerned from this first episode is the favorites just knocking it out of the park and the fans being beyond helpless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let me, uh, let's talk a little bit, I think about just Johnny Fairplay being the first boot here and how that kind of like impacted his legacy as a survivor player, because I feel like in not even just the short term year or two after this happened, it kind of uh, was a black mark on his place within the grand scheme of like all time survivor legends. Uh, I, I think that did persist for a little while, but I honestly think it may have worn off and people really do only think about Pearl Island's fair play at this point. But how much do you, Dom, think that fair play essentially quitting in round one on his only return appearance affects his kind of status as one of the all time iconic and memorable characters? I don't think it really does anything. And there's this paradox here where if you if you go out early enough, by definition, you have not been on the season for long enough to really be seen as a flop. Whereas if you make it a little bit longer and then uh, you're like the last one out before the swap or, you know, two before the merge or something, at that point, your, uh, your failed stint on that season is memorable enough that it kind of overrides <laughs> some of those good memories from before. So I actually don't think it does all that much. What it does do is really uh, sap some of the momentum out of the early episodes here, where I had forgot just how frankly underwhelming this premiere is by comparison with you know most of the other seasons we've mentioned uh on this podcast I, and i do think a lot of that comes down to fair play just out of nowhere wanting out where it did seem like this potential like four on four situation would have been quite interesting and set into motion some pretty long-term consequences about how things were going to play out on the much more interesting favorites tribe than we would ever realistically care about uh the fans side of things they just were kind of robbed of that opportunity at least in the short term because johnny fairplay decided he wanted to go home and incidentally i i don't i certainly don't remember if we asked him this uh maybe we can find out somehow but you know he talks about i just want to go home and be with my girlfriend did he actually get to go home? Like, did he get the Jimmy Johnson and Vetus treatment of they actually let him leave after three days of filming? Because I don't remember hearing that that happened. 
so I, I found uh, an AMA from Kathy Stegman from back in the day who, again, possibly unreliable narrator, but maybe not uh, on uh, on where it matters. And she says that Fair Play was on the pre-jury trip with them, just getting completely shit-faced every single day. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> story, uh, I don't think any story has checked out more than that one. 100%. Yeah, I will. I will gladly take Kathy's word. Uh, on that that yeah he doesn't even get to go home uh, he, he's just not in the game anymore it, do you know of anyone other than jimmy johnson or vetus who has actually gotten to leave early huh that that is an excellent trivia question which i am in no place to answer at the moment i'm not either those are the only two names that i've ever heard actually get to go back to america while the season is still filming mm-hmm. yeah uh so let me ask you this dom would you be interested in seeing Johnny Fairplay back on Survivor, setting aside the sheer lack of likelihood that that ever happens? Would you want to see if, you know, Survivor 50 is some all-time blowout legend season and you find out Johnny Fairplay is going to be on the cast? Would that interest you? I would be intrigued, but not really have any high expectations for it. I think that his, his shtick was, I mean, it was controversial the first time around. I think it worked insofar as it did when he was uh when it was you know 20 years ago and he was even then in his late 20s and pretty young i think as like this grungy older guy who's going to be on the wrong side of 50 soon i don't know if it would come across that well yeah i honestly don't even know what to expect out of that i i believe it is the case uh or at least was for a little while but i i think it may still be that at least as of a few years ago, he was like a born again Christian and like a potentially much different. I, that's all, I, I'm being I, I'm pretty sure that happened uh, if it is not still currently happening. And we could conceivably see like a completely different side of Johnny Fairplay if he were to come back. But I really have a hard time buying anything other than him if he were back on Survivor, wanting to remind Jeff and everyone else what an all-time elite kind of character and villain and diabolical mastermind he is, uh, where someone in uh, this Micronesia premiere episode flagged up the idea, and I don't think they're crazy for thinking this, that like a risk to aligning with Johnny Fairplay is he may blindside me down the line for no reason other than to blindside me, even if it makes like no strategic sense for him, but just to cement his kind of reputation as a scoundrel and someone you should never be willing to trust. Like he may go out of his way to kind of potentially even hurt his own game to build his own image as like the all time survivor villain and i could certainly see that sort of thing happening if he were there uh there could be some like geesling-esque uh using a possibly dead possibly not grandfather's cross as collateral uh swearing on his image as a christian man or something to further his own ends like, which, I, I mean, honestly if we're going that direction i'm here for it Let, let's uh watch all of that play i out. think that, that would be a way that he could kind of outdo himself is to like go in presenting as this born again christian and have a legitimate kind of like backstory to it and i'm not questioning the legitimacy 
of it. But like, if he were to then turn the tables like on national TV and be like, Oh, now that I'm back on the Island, I just can't help myself. And the devil's taking over or whatever. Uh, the, the rationale was to like, really sell it in a Dan Giesling esque way to just like abuse religion to get his way uh, in one of these games. I do think that could go uh, some distance in cementing that reputation, but I think it's pretty much uh, a fool's errand theorizing about how Johnny Fairplay returning to American survivor would potentially look. Although I, and I, no, I've heard Rob talk about this before, and I don't want to present this as if this is some sort of original take by me here. I could definitely see a world where Johnny Fairplay is brought onto Australian Survivor, and I could also see a world where Johnny Fairplay very much knows that that is his best bet, and that is why he is going so hard in the paint with the Australian Survivor coverage that he is doing. I, I'm i not sure I could see that world. Like, does the name Johnny Fairplay really mean that much to an Australian audience at this point. I like think it I, does. I think, I mean, I, they've had Russell I, I, and Sandra and everyone knew who they were. I, I, those are, I mean, two like world historic names within the context of survivor and fair play was up there at one point. I just don't know if he is anymore. And the, the ultimate indignity would be for him to go out there and get the, <laughs> the same reception that Amanda Kimmel got. <laughs> on I, as much as I appreciate you tying a bow on all of this with that fantastic comparison, I would say there is nothing short of a 100% chance that he would be recognized by most, at, at least enough people on a modern Australian Survivor cast that everyone within a few hours of being at their camp would know if they didn't already, okay, that's one of the most like notorious villains in the history of the U.S. version. The impression I get from Australian Survivor is it, it really is binary in the sense that everyone either knows all there is to know about American Survivor <laughs> and all the minutiae and so on, or they know literally nothing. Uh, and so I, I'm imagining these uh, like taciturn uh, 40-something rugby players or whatever just having the, the concept of Johnny Fairplay patiently explained to them and just none of it sinking in. I, I am happy to grant that there will be... S- at least a few people who have no idea who Johnny Fairplay is and don't really care upon finding out. But I definitely think uh, there is no chance of him being unknown to enough people in the cast for it to be anything other than probably similar to like the Russell treatment of everyone just being on their toes and knowing we've got to get rid of this guy. Uh, I mean, if he is really going deep in the paint with Australian Survivor, then there there is something to read into that, but I'm not quite sure what. You you may have put your finger on it. I I mean, there's, as far as I'm concerned, virtually no chance that he is going to get brought back on to U.S. Survivor. But I think there is at least some chance that it happens for Australian Survivor, and I think he probably knows that. Uh, Okay, Dom, there we have it. Survivor Micronesia episode one officially in the books here do you do you have anything else that uh, you wanted to get to that i have grossly skipped over i think that that just about does it it's appropriate in my mind that we spent so long talking about the the big picture aspects of the season and what it meant and the metagame coming in and, and so on and so forth and very little time talking about the premiere itself which as we said really is nothing to write home about and i 
remember the season picking up from here, but if it doesn't, I'm going to be sitting here scratching my head wondering what all the hype is about. I think we may be able to compile episodes two and three together uh, and get through the... Oh, no. Well, if, episode, if memory serves, again, I haven't rewatched this, but I believe we're looking at Mary and Mikey B uh, leaving back to back for similar reasons. So I think those two may make a, a natural pair for our podcast coverage there. Uh, but yeah, no question. The season will pick up uh, at a certain point here. And incidentally, I'm going to be deeply embarrassed if it turns out that those are not the next two boots of this season. And I'm just remembering incorrectly, uh, Dom. One final segment for the people this week. It is not quite coming this fall just because we're running so long, but uh, I did notice pop up in the lower third of the still pirated versions uh, of these episodes that I've been watching that were literally just ripped from CBS itself uh, back in 2008 and have still somehow lived on in at least the form of an external hard drive that I've kept around for many, many years at this point. Uh, so we are still getting the kind of CBS promo material on the bottom of the screen. And it is not in this case, a CBS show that will be coming this fall, but Dom in a first time segment coming this Sunday, the 50th annual Grammy awards. Uh, I did a little bit of research on how things played out there. Nothing to, shocking or interesting other than i did think it was funny uh nominated for but not winning best new artist taylor swift uh who <laughs> at this point may be like among the most famous musicians on the planet but i i believe it is the case that she didn't get any grammy awards that night it was it, it, perhaps tragically it was uh amy winehouse who won best new artist and record of the year and got all the awards and accolades as the kind of like it girl newcomer of the year uh and you know very justifiably so uh but did think it was funny that taylor swift was just the last person listed in the nominated for best new artist and did not win it there uh either way dom i believe i am fresh out here on micronesia episode one anything else you want to tell the people before we take off uh no i'm good all right uh i believe that will finally do it for us thank you guys for sticking with us this long. Uh, thank you to all the people supporting us over on patreon.com slash Dom and Colin, making all of this possible. And you will at a certain point be hearing this episode in your main feed podcatcher as well. Uh, we're going to be releasing this for free in our just regular uh, podcast feed. And if you are hearing it there, uh, it is because the time has come where episodes two and three are already up over on the patron feed. So one more time, patreon.com slash Dom and Colin. If you would like to continue with us on this Micronesian Jersey uh, journey there, he is on Twitter, of course, at Dom HRV. I am on Twitter at Colin Stone. That is going to do it for us here. Thank you for sticking with us this long. We will talk to you soon. Take care, everybody.